Anyway, good afternoon to all of you on a beautiful Sabbath day here. <coughs> this uh, coming Wednesday night, we have Bible study. It's uh, the new moon comes on the evening of the afternoon, the evening of the 19th. So the 20th and Thursday is the first day of the sixth month of God's calendar. Uh, it's notable that that is uh, noted as the date that Haggai used to begin his message was the six-month first day. I don't necessarily expect, expect the events of Haggai to start coming uh, this year on that day, but I expect it to be important probably next year uh, because it does appear that the gathering probably will occur starting next spring uh, after Passover. That would be my best guess at this point based on the scriptures and where we are in terms of the world and the beast appearing. Just as a note along those lines, a, a, it's only, by the way, only about seven weeks till Feast of Tabernacles I counted up. It's early in October this year instead of the middle. It begins on the second, so it'll be feast before you know it. Trumpets itself is on the 18th of September. That's just a little over a month away. Anyway, I, I think we all speculated maybe to some degree how the Scriptures in Revelation would come to pass, how this beast power would arise and what it would look like, and how would they gain such transcendency that they could make everybody on earth take their mark, otherwise they can't buy or sell and do any kind of trade, and so on. And it has begun shaping up very clearly, I think, uh, here in the last few months. And let me go back to Revelation 18 just for a moment here. This thought came to mind, I think, yesterday. He mentions here Pharmakeia particularly, uh, down about verse 22, 3, somewhere here. Yeah, 23. Speaking of this nation, the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in you, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in you. Uh, life will be disrupted, in other words. Uh, we sometimes read that one where it says that as in the days of Noah, they went on marrying and giving in marriage and so on, uh, trying to lead a normal life. And we've noted, noted that uh, these things are going to come very suddenly. He says an hour or a day in this chapter with our, that our fall will come. Uh, a day is as a year and can mean... Uh, a period of time, not just 24 hours. In an hour can be a very short space of time, uh, weeks, perhaps months even, uh, in prophecy. But there'll come a point where the bride and the bridegroom aren't going to be getting married anymore, and this normal way of life is going to cease. And I've already heard, even with this COVID thing, of people who've put off their weddings I'm not going to get married uh, until this thing's over. Uh, so 
we're already seeing the effect here of how it's disrupting people's lives. <clears throat> For the merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorceries, and the word there is pharmakeia, drugs, were all nations deceived. Now, it is within our nation that we are developing there are other people working on it, but the one that's going to be developed is going to be by Bill Gates, I'm sure. Uh, and it will deceive all the nations. So we have right here embedded in Gen uh, Revelation 18, I think, a way that this is going to help come about that all the nations are deceived. Up to this point, you had Pfizer and all these drug companies uh, sending drugs out and around the world, for that matter. But drugs were cheaper overseas than they were here. They were cheaper in Canada than here. There have just been embargoes and sanctions whereby those drugs <coughs> were not to be imported by our people. We were forced to pay the high price of American companies, pharma pharmaceuticals. But now that is working on being changed, and they're working on a vaccine now for this virus. And I'm sure they probably already have it prepared well ahead of time, because I firmly believe that it's going to be used around the world to get the whole world to accept a vaccination. And within that vaccination, they're going to have the personal information about the individual. They're going to probably even implant the chip there so that uh, you can't buy or sell without it. Now, I don't know whether they'll put the chip in differently with a different shot later. They might, the hand or forehead as opposed to the arm. I don't know where they're going to put this vaccine. Usually it's the arm with most vaccines, I guess still. I don't know. Uh, but... They're using it as something to sell to the world that you have to have that. And they're already saying that you can't use credit cards, you can't go to school, you can't uh, be employed unless you have the vaccination patch to show that you've been vaccinated. So they're already planning to use it as a tremendous control on the population of the earth. And it will be accepted universally, because without it, you can't go to work, you can't go to school, you can't go shop. They won't let you in the stores unless you have proof you've been vaccinated. And if they catch you not vaccinated, you go directly to a FEMA camp where they're setting up the guillotines, and you'll be executed if you refuse the vaccination. This is already being... Uh, said. So we know where it's headed, and the beast is appearing in this fashion, and it will deceive the whole world into taking the vaccination, which I'm sure will have side effects and kill millions and millions of people. That's the way they're setting it up. Bill Gates says he's there to get rid of measles and stuff, and uh, he's developing this vaccine. 
But he has stated emphatically that 90% of the people on earth need to be killed. So he's out of one side of his mouth, he's saying we need to save these people with his vaccine. On the other side of his mouth, he's saying we need to kill 90% of them. Now, which do you think is the truth? And will the vaccination be used for evil purposes? So I think that's one we need to really keep our eye on and realize that even though this virus acted like at first, it was going to be much worse than it was. And we thought we may have to quarantine, we may have to shut the gates, we may not be able to go anywhere. And we were very careful right at the beginning. I'm less careful now. I won't wear their stupid masks in Costco or Walmart, either one. I went in both the other day, and they handed me one at Costco, so I stuck it up here, and as soon as I got past her, I took it off. And I saw a few other people in there that didn't have them on either, and the same, did the same thing at Walmart. Held it up till I got in and took it off. But, as this thing is advancing, I say we thought we might have to totally quarantine. But once they start passing out this vaccine and making it mandatory, if you go anywhere public or get stopped at a traffic stop, which they will have, already got them in New York, and somebody got shot the other day by a cop because they would not answer questions about where they'd been or who they'd seen. Actually shot to death by a cop. So these are just the very beginnings of it, and it's going to get a lot worse. So in terms of preparation, we need to be as ready as we can be to realize the day is coming when we will not be able to leave this property without danger of death, FEMA camp, or being vaccinated against our will. Uh, they want to kill so many that I think if you protest, they'll just haul you off. They won't just give it to you. They'll just haul you off to cut your head off. That's the way it's going to be. That's the way it's shaping up. And I think Revelation 18 says so. They'll use pharmacy to deceive the whole world. And I can't say apart from this anyway, I can see that they've used uh, drugs or pharmacy products to deceive the whole world. But this one, they're in the process of sowing it all over the world. You see, I saw some, I mean, people from foreign countries all over, you see news about them, and here they got their masks on. So it's being used to deceive the whole world into taking this vaccination for their own safety. And then when it come, push comes to shove for a job, for ability to go in a store, you won't be able to go anywhere without a vaccination and a mask. Nowhere. Mandatory. So, what do we do? God may let us go through a certain amount of this. He already is. We're already into it. We're going through a certain amount of it. It's just going to get worse. Do you have preparations to last a month or six? Or just a week? Or just two weeks? Better think about it. Because it's coming. It's coming like a freight train. And it's getting tougher every day.
the time will come, I think very soon, in which we cannot leave this property without hazard of death. So be prepared. Some people say, oh, well, i got to go to the store every week. Well, pretty soon you won't be able to go to the store. Period. None of us. Nobody can shop for you. Nobody can go because it will get that strict. And I'm here watching it. And I'm supposed to be your watchman to let you know when I see danger and to inform you of it. Believe me or not, prepare or not, I don't know whether everybody here is going to be willing to feed you if you don't have preparations made. So people wonder, what do I do with my money? It's going to become worthless. That's right, it is. The U.S. dollar is going to be absolutely, totally worthless. And I believe gold and silver will also become totally worthless because you can't eat it. And there'll be no food. There'll be famine and pestilence in the land. Famine and disease. And they're concocting famine right now by shutting down whole industries, agriculture, food supply is being shut down. So a lot of the famine that God predicted is going to be caused by the beast power, those in charge. And the pestilence, which is disease that goes with famine, is also being concocted and given to us, and probably will be by the millions with a vaccine. I don't know how they'll do it. Maybe they'll give you some kind of a vaccination at first, and nobody will die, and they'll say, oh, well, you didn't. it doesn't have any side effects, but it's not doing any good. So now we've perfected one. Now you're, you're getting used to it. You took one. Now this is a better one. And it might be the one that kills millions. I don't know. That's just a speculative thought. But they're going to do it in such a way that they're going to get people to have a in death injection. Death injection. It's coming. Euthanasia. And I think it's prophesied right there in Revelation 18. That's the method that they're using to deceive the nations. As we speak, as we sit here. So get as prepared as you can. Uh, money's not going to mean a thing. It'll be worthless. Zephaniah clearly says they'll throw it in the street, including the gold and the silver. Gold and silver might be good for a month or two or three longer than the dollar, I don't know. Uh, but it won't be good for very long. So there's nothing ahead of food, water, uh, and the things necessary to have if you cannot go to the store. Because that day is coming and coming very soon. We could be in a total civil war by either before or after this election farce. We really could. So Trump wins. Is Antifa and BLM just going to go away? Or are they going to be incensed even further? And the protests and the riots are going to get worse if he's reelected. If he's killed in the meantime, 
then the constitutionalists and so-called patriots are going to be ready to go on the war path. If he loses it, and you have an Alzheimer's patient and a black woman who has already said, two years ago she said in a speech that Trump needed to die. She has also said that when the Democrats take over, that they are going to take everyone who is dissident against them and re-educate them. Re-educate is a cover term for cutting your head off in a FEMA camp. And the Bible clearly tells us in Jeremiah 50 and 51, 51 I think specifically, that there will be violence in the land, ruler against ruler. And if the rulers are killing each other, then the citizens are going to be killing one another, each other. It's already happened here and there a little bit. And it's going to get far worse. So if you're going to make any preps, you need to get it done in the next month or two. Because this thing could turn truly ugly very quickly. Just yesterday, I read a report that the state police in Oregon have abandoned Portland. No state troopers on the freeways. No state troopers to call. They've simply given the city up. So you got the local cops, and they're being defunded. And pretty soon, it'll be war in the streets, complete and total anarchy. That's Portland. Seattle's not far behind. And neither is Minneapolis and neither is Chicago and New York. This thing is upon us, brethren. Let's take it seriously. And be as ready as we can be. Now, I know we've read many, many scriptures which say God will take care of us. And He will. But I also realize that He may test us and try us. How much faith do we truly have? How much trust do we have? And we have examples in the Bible where his own people, his chosen ones, were allowed to go through uh, some of the difficulties that came upon Mitzrayim. I've mentioned this before, and I've thought about it for decades, that before God's people are taken to safety, they may have to go through a certain amount of what's going on. And in fact, I believe it's Isaiah 7, or is it 8, somewhere right in there, it might be 9, it says that the Assyrian will attempt to smite us as slaves as was done in Egypt. But God will drive them off. Well, I'm thinking about that and quoting it. Let's go back there. Might be, well, I don't remember exactly where it is, but we can find it pretty fast. I know I got it marked. Let's see. Maybe it's here in 9. He says that we in the land will be under the shadow of death in verse 2. You multiplied the nation and increased the joy. Uh, the yoke of our burden will be broken. Is that the place? No, it's in uh, 
and 10. Verse 24. Therefore thus says the eternal God of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite you with a rod and shall lift up his staff against you after the manner of Mitzrayim. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and my anger in their destruction. So, for a little while, they're going to have a certain amount of influence. That's very clear. You go to Micah 4 and 5, and it makes it clear that when the Assyrian comes against God's people, that seven, even eight principal men will be sent out against them to rout them. That's quite an interesting one as well. I don't mean to make a sermon out of this, but let's go to Micah for a moment. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall he come forth to me, that is, to be ruler in Israel. Uh, Verse 3, Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travails has brought forth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Remnant returning. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. Uh, And this man, verse 5, shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. That's the promised land. Could be... Speaking just of America, which is the expanded promised land, or it could even mean uh, the original promised land in which we already dwell. And when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof, Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the eternal. So God will bless and he'll take care of us. But there's going to be a short period of time in which they will come against us and try to smite us with the rod. And then they'll be routed by God and by those whom God sends. So, be aware that this is almost upon us. There are Russian and Chinese troops scattered over America today in civilian uniform. Okay, let's go back to Genesis I just felt like I shouldn't let the day go without saying something because this is becoming imminent. Now, we came down to chapter 16. Here I digressed a little bit over Sarah handing her handmaid over to Abram. Uh, God's original will, as Christ said in Matthew 19, was to be one man, one woman for life, until death does us part. That was his original intention, because that works best if followed. Uh, Now, he said in the Old Testament, 
Testament, because of the hardness of your hearts, he allowed multiple marriages and this kind of thing to go on. But as I stated, every case you read of it in the Old Testament, there were troubles between the women and troubles between the kids and so on and so forth. And we even have a good example here in Colorado City, Hilldale. The women and the daughters, if you see them in their traditional dress, their prairie dresses and so on, it's hard to get a smile out of them, most of them. They look downtrodden. They look forlorn. They look discouraged. They look frustrated. Uh, you don't see a lot of merriment and happiness and joy there because they're taught from the time they can understand English that their purpose in life is to be a broodmare. I am here to breed and have lots of children because the Mormons believe that all these people in the past that have died without being baptized have to be baptized by proxy today, even though they're long dead. And that's why they go through all these genealogies to see who in the world is their ancestor. And if they find ancestors in their family tree, they go down and get baptized for them so they can go to heaven even though long dead and never having repented. Totally contrary to Scripture. Ridiculous. Stupid. Way off base. But that level of misunderstanding has created all kinds of problems. And did here. But God had compassion on Hagar. It wasn't her fault that Abraham, I mean, Sarah sent her into Abraham. And she had Ishmael. And got kicked out into the desert by Sarah. So he had compassion on her as you go down in the chapter 16 and told her that a multitude would come from Ishmael, that he would be a wild man, verse 12, and his hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him, and he'll dwell in the presence of all his brethren. So uh, essentially the Arab world uh, and uh, they are a wild type of people, and that has been from then until this day. But he did bless her in that sense. But the line through he who would become Isaac was much, much different than the line that came through Ishmael. Anyway, we go on down to chapter 17. Uh, Abram was 99 years old. Now, he was 86 when Hagar conceived, so 13 years later he was beyond that and incapable, and God came to him, and he said, I'm the Almighty God, walk before me and be you perfect. We understand perfect to mean mature, to be as obedient as possible. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceeding, exceedingly. Abram fell on his face. Great respect, great fear, great reverence that he had for God. Uh, he had very deep emotion along these lines. And he said, my covenant's with you, and you'll be the father of many nations, so you're not going to be called Abram anymore. Now, this is God's side of this friendship. He comes and tells him, walk before me right, but he doesn't make this conditional. He doesn't say to Abram, 
um, if you'll do this, I will do that. He just instructs him to do well, but then he unqualifiedly tells him, I'm going to do this. There's a friend that doesn't put a lot of strings on something. You know, a lot of, you've met a lot of people that they'll do you some good, but there's a string attached. They want you to do something for them in return. And they'll hold you to it a year or ten later. Well, I did this for you. Why don't you do this for me? We've seen that. And then they'll intimidate you or uh, try to get you to do something by laying a guilt trip on you because of what they did for you whenever they did it. Now, God just openly says this. John Reitenbaugh covered it in a Berean three or four or five days ago, whenever it was, about how unqualifiedly God had said, I'm going to do these things without eliciting a response. He did say, walk before me perfectly. But he didn't say, and then if you do so, I will do this. No, he just said, this is what I want you to do. And he had enough confidence in Abraham that he didn't lay any restriction or qualification on it. He just said, I'm going to do it. Wouldn't it be nice if we, with each other, could just say, I love you, I'm going to do this for you. Whatever it is, I want to do it for you. God can do that, and He can make it happen. We might want to sometimes, but we don't have the power to make it happen, whatever it is. Uh, so we have to work at it. But well, we're seeing here how this friendship worked both ways. Abraham, or Abram, believed God, and it was counted as righteousness. Uh, in verse 5, he says, Neither shall your name any more be called Abram, but you, your name shall be Abraham. Abram meant high or, or Abram, yeah, meant high or lofty father. It was a pretty good name in itself, Abram. But he upgraded it to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. So he wouldn't just be a high and lofty father over a small family, but over a whole multitude as large as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heavens. So God, ahead of time, he just told him, walk perfect before me. But before Abraham had done that, he changes his name and gives him an upgrade. That's pretty rare. Now, has he promised you that? No. No. Read Revelation 2 and 3, where he says, if you will overcome... If you will grow, and puts other conditions in there in each one of those church uh, descriptions, if you'll overgrow, overcome and grow, then I'll give you a new name. Now with Abraham, he was already in, or Abram, he was already in a relationship as a dear friend of God, and called that by God. So he conferred upon him the new name before Sarah even had a kid, before anything had happened. 
With you and me, he's more cautious. Walk before me and overcome, and I will give you a new name. And I'll let you sing a new song. And I'll give you a white stone representing righteousness. Makes all kinds of promises in there if we will overcome. So overcome what? Sin and human nature. Satanism. The things the world is not overcoming that they're delving deeper into day by day. And we have to walk entirely the other direction. And it's not easy. It's very difficult to do so. So he has laid it upon us. And Christ did when he told the disciples, If you will keep my commandments, I will call you friends. So he did lay conditions on them and on you and me as those who are listening to them these 1,900 years later. But here was a friend indeed already, and he gave him his new name ahead of time. That may be the one he stays with throughout eternity. Reckon? Father of a multitude, that's pretty good. Father of all Israel. Says David will be king of all Israel. But Abraham will always have the title father of all Israel, because that's what he is. doesn't say specifically what his job will be in the kingdom like it does David. But David is only the king, and Abraham is the father. That, that by itself is a higher allocation of responsibility and authority. Well, I want someday to be called a friend of God. I want to obey and be diligent in that and walk as perfectly as I can before him in spite of human nature and everything around us and have the, come to the place that God will say, Welcome to my kingdom, friend. Wouldn't that be nice? I am well pleased with you, friend, or I am pleased maybe only well pleased with Christ, and maybe Abraham. <laughs> but if we could just please him as a friend, as a son, as a brother, uh, all those things as a bride for his son, uh, wouldn't it be nice to have the father of all the entire universe come around to all 144,000 of us and give us a big hug and say, congratulations, bride of my son. That would be Quite something. It wouldn't surprise me if he did it either. Then he says, I'll make you fruitful and nation will come from you. And then he makes a covenant with him. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin... And it will be a token of the covenant between you and me. And when they're eight days old, every man-child is to be circumcised. And even if you buy a slave, uh, not of your seed, and he that is born in your house, and verse 14, the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, there were a lot of 
men there, old men, middle-aged men, young men, and kids, who had not been circumcised. And they didn't have anesthesia as we know it these days. I don't know, maybe they had some kind of herbs they used to help deaden pain, but this could not have been a pleasant thing for Abraham to contemplate. I'm sure as God told him this, he kind of winced <laughs> a little bit, uh, knowing what was coming. But he said, okay, I accept this covenant. And then in 15, he says, and, and according to your wife, don't call her Sarai, but call her Sarah. Changed her name too. Sarah means princess. So he upgraded her name ahead of it. I'll bless her and give you a son also of her. Yes, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Now she got chided for laughing because hers may have been a little more in disbelief. I don't know. I'm speculating here. Why didn't God get on him for falling on his face and laughing? Well, maybe he really believed it, but it just struck him really funny. I don't know what else to say. Uh, so he fell on his face and laughed <laughs> and said in his heart, Shall a child be born of him that is a hundred years old, and shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Are, are you making a mistake here? Is, 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 is it really supposed to be Ishmael? Or are you really saying, I'm going to engender a child? And Sarah is? You know, we've been past this for a long time. I've, I've kind of forgotten what it's all about. I, you know, can it be Ishmael? God took this okay. Was Abraham questioning? Yahweh was. You really mean that, or is it going to be Ishmael? That, you know, did you get the names confused here? No. No, I didn't. <clears throat> and God said, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son indeed. You shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. God has a friend, and he intends to do something with that friend. He means it. Now, there's going to be a test on this. Abraham laughed. Then he got over laughing and began to question. But God loved him enough. And, you know, God is the God of the universe. But he loved him enough that he would put up with Abraham questioning to some degree. Are you and I that confident with God? I'm scared to question it. I really am. I I fear to question it because who is he compared to me? There's no I mean you can't even compare. Period. And he knows so much more and understands so much more and has infinite wisdom 
Who am I to question him in any way? And yet under these circumstances, where Abraham was saying, uh, God, I can't do this. God knew he couldn't do it. He knew for certain he couldn't do it. And he knew that Sarah was well beyond and couldn't do it. But he just presented it to it. He didn't go into great detail, I don't think. It isn't recorded anyway. He didn't say, Abraham, I know how old you are, and I know how long it's been since, and I know how old she is, and I know this can't happen, but I'm God, and uh, let me explain this clearly. <laughs> this is going to happen. He could have gone in great detail, but he didn't. doesn't appear. He just said, this is the way it's going to be. Do we have the faith and trust in God for some of the promises that he has made to us that this is indeed going to happen? Now, it's been 24 years since a lot of this information I came to understand from God. I expected it to happen fairly quickly. If he gives you information, then it must be going to happen soon. And it's gone on for a long time. I still believe it. It's gone on for quite some time for some of you. 10, 12, 14, 15, 20 years. It's gone on since you came to understand these prophecies about what he's going to do with the remnant and the temple and where the promised land is and all these things. Are we enduring patiently and trusting God and still believing Him? We've had some who didn't. They gave up. They're gone. We have some who gave up who are still here. And they're going to suffer for their lack of faith and trust in God before this is over. There's a real lesson here. That if we're going to be friends of God and he is going to be friends toward us, we got to believe him. Now, he called Abraham his friend, and he's being very patient with Abraham when Abraham questions. He was even pretty patient with Sarah. He scolded her a little bit for laughing, but he didn't withdraw the promise either, did he? He didn't punish her for it. He just kind of said, now wait, Sarah, you did indeed laugh. That's all he said to her. You did laugh. Don't lie to me. <laughs> you just lied to me. You're going to hell. No. It wasn't his reaction. Don't lie to me. I'm going to do this for you. And then she got it. And it happened. So anyway, he went through... The test of circumcision. Now, let's understand about Abraham's character and personality. That's kind of the whole point here, is how he reacts and what his true character is. What kind of person was he? Because if we understand what kind of person and personality he had, then that gives us something to work on in our personalities 
But as we look to the father of the faithful, to Abraham and to Sarah, we might come to have some of the same character, the same responses, the same type of personality that they had. And that's my whole point here, really overall. So let's see another character uh, trait of Abraham here in chapter 18. The Eternal appeared to him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. <coughs> I think Abraham must have gotten up and worked early, like sometimes we need to do here. <laughs> You get out there six thirty seven o'clock and go to work. By 10 o'clock, you're starting to sweat pretty good. And uh, during the heat of the day, Abraham went and sat in the tent door and hoped for some breeze and shade. And then maybe he went out later and worked again. That's part of the actually the Latin culture even to this day is uh, get out and work. And then you got siesta. And everybody takes off for a while and rests up and cools off and then goes back to work. So this was something that Abraham was doing way back then. Anyway, he lifted his eyes, and there were three men uh, that stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, pass not away, I pray, from your servant. Now, it doesn't say here if he knows who this is or not. He did say, my Lord, but you, in that culture, you refer to any stranger as being as important or more important than you were. Uh, you showed respect, in other words. And even in Christ's day, somebody came to your house, you bowed before them. You got down on your knees and washed their feet. Now, that's kind of a demeaning thing, in a way, for us to bow before someone and wash their feet. But that's what culture dictated. And we do it as a sign of humility to each other at the Passover once a year, uh, just as a sign or a reminder that we are to be humble before each other. We should do it every day, be in a foot-washing attitude, not defensive, not vain, not egocentric, but a foot-washing attitude where we're willing to do whatever we can for someone, to humble ourselves in any way within the law uh, to help them. So I call it a foot-washing attitude. It's been used somewhat in the church over the years. And that's what he had here. So... He wanted to fetch a little water, wash your feet, rest yourselves under the tree, and I'll fetch a morsel of bread and comfort you your hearts. Uh, and after that you shall pass on, for therefore you come to your servant. And they said, So do as you've said. So Abraham ran out, picked out a fat calf, gave it to a young man to kill it and dress it and prepare it. So this was going to be a pretty long visit. Uh, we butchered a cow here not too long ago, and it took considerable time and effort and energy. Of course, this was a fatted calf, not as big, but still, <laughs> you got to kill it and hang it and clean it out and skin it and find some meat in there. 
and then they'll go cook it. They didn't age it. The guys weren't staying two weeks, and they didn't have a refrigeration unit, so they ate fresh meat right off the carcass, cooked it up, and ate it. But the point I want to make here is how hospitable Abraham was. He just pulled out all stops to make sure these guys were comfortable. Wash your feet. I'll get you something to drink. Sit down here in the shade. We'll have food prepared here pretty quick, just as soon as we can, and feed you. And Abraham hastened to the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. So he puts her to baking and the young man to um, rest the calf as quickly as possible. And he took butter and milk and the calf, which he had dressed, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. So whether he knew who they were or not isn't really said, but it becomes pretty obvious as time goes on. But whether for God or whether for just a stranger, this hospitable attitude was there. He said of the ministry in the New Testament, that one of the qualifications was to be hospitable, to uh, take care of people, uh, feed them, buy them a drink, whatever. Uh, be hospitable toward them. So they asked where Sarah was. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah heard it standing behind the tent door. Now, shows again their age and condition. And she laughed within herself, saying, Am I going to have pleasure of having a child now? Abraham being also ineffective. <coughs> the Lord said to Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh? She didn't laugh audibly. She laughed within herself. So he had the ability to read her mind, to understand her emotion. I think sometimes we fail to realize how intimately God is involved in our lives. We are not as intimately involved with God as He is with us. He created us. He designed us, first of all, and created us just as we are, male and female, and all of the different characteristics of each. He planned it, plotted it, designed it, all of it. And what does He say? He says, not one sparrow will fall to the earth, but he doesn't know it. Now, when I was a kid, I killed a few rabbits and sparrows. And I wasn't thinking of that. But as I think back, when I was ten years old, if I shot a sparrow out of a tree, God knew about that. Nothing escapes him. He says, the hairs of our head are numbered. Now, that is getting pretty personal, isn't it? Isn't that pretty intimate? That every one of us sitting here, right now, today, God knows how many hairs are on our head. I don't know whether He does it for the whole world or not. He may. 
but certainly those that he is intimately involved with, he does. And Christ made that kind of as a general uh, term to a multitude of people. So it might be that everybody here on this earth, seven and a half billion of us, times how many ever tens of thousands of hairs they all have, wow. Now, if he is that intimately involved with you and me, he also knows every thought we think, just like he did with Sarah. He knew she smirked inside and laughed, but not out loud. Why did she laugh? Oh, I didn't laugh. You couldn't have heard me laugh. I didn't laugh. Yeah, you did. <laughs> no, I didn't hear it. You didn't hear it either. But it happened. It was an attitude. It was a thought that went through your mind. And you laughed inside. You can't fool God. He is a friend that you can depend upon because he has said he will be faithful and true to us, that he will never leave nor forsake us. He will always be there. And he will always know our every thought. And you know what? Sometimes those can be pretty despicable in any human being. But God doesn't give up on us because we got a bad attitude. You know, you might hide a bad attitude from people. You might just act like everything's fine. But inside, you're... We've all been there. And you try to hide it. Now, sometimes people who are discerning can see through it. And they can read your attitude. Maybe they don't read your thoughts, but they can see your body language in your face and some of those things that give us away. But I think there's a lot to understand there in this thing, in that God knows everything about us, every thought. He, he ponders our hearts, what we think on the inside, he sees, he feels, he knows. Not one thought that you have is he unaware of. So there is someone who does not reject you because of all the stuff that's still there. Even after maybe years and years of conversion, there's still stuff there that shouldn't be there. And he sees it all and he doesn't reject us. You know, as human friends... If you could read the mind totally and completely of everyone in this room, we would probably all hike our skirts and flee into the desert. Well, we're already in the desert. But there are a lot of thoughts that go through this little group of people's minds that are good, bad, and indifferent and despicable all rolled into one and attitudes that go up and down and all over the place. Contemplation of sin, sin, all kinds of things that go through our minds. And He is so faithful and so true 
And he loves us so much that he's not going to throw us out. He's going to work with us. You've heard the expression, don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. Well, the bathwater's maybe pretty dirty, might be pretty stinky. You wash the poo off the baby's bottom in that water. So the water's not much count. But he saves the baby. Doesn't throw it out. Throws the water out. So our sin, he throws out through the sacrifice of Christ. That he will never leave or never forsake us. You've broken up with a lot of friends over the years, or friends have broken up with you, or you've drifted apart. Sometimes it was acrimonious, sometimes it was just friendly, but just lapsed. But with God, He won't let it lapse. He won't let our arguments upset Him. He won't let our lacks bother Him to the point that He severs a relationship. We have every chance, as long as we draw breath, to overcome, to grow, to make amends, and to be close to God. Because He's ever there for us. If he counts your hair, he's on your side. We don't love ourselves or each other as much as he loves us. I've never counted my hair. It's beyond me. It's getting where it's a little more likely I could. But uh, not entirely. (laughs) There's no way. And I don't even care. How many hairs are there? I just don't care. But he cares. And he counts them. Wow. What kind of a friend is that? Now, what should that elicit in us? Yes, Lord, anything. The fatted calf. Bake the bread. Get everything together here. Butter, milk, water, whatever you need. We're here. We're here to help you. Oh, you need a temple bill. We're here. Samuel, here am I. Isaiah, here am I. Send me. Abraham, I'll get you a fatted calf. Oh, okay. Thank you. Now we're going to eat. Now I'm going to tell you something. Next year, at a set appointed time, Sarah's going to have a baby. Then they rose up, the men, verse 16, and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. So he went with them a ways to see them off. You've showed people out the front door, haven't you? I mean, nicely. I've I've seen some Jehovah's Witnesses off. And it's, it's a little different. It's not real hospitable sometimes. But he went with them. I've walked out to people's car with them many times, so have you. I mean, it's just kind of a thing sometimes we do with someone we like and love. We'll see them off. It's a nice, hospitable thing to do. Anyway, verse 17, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed in him, for I know him. 
God was intimately involved with and knew Abraham's thoughts. He knew his innermost feelings, his attitudes, and everything. I know him and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Eternal to do justice and judgment, that the Eternal may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. He says, I know he's going to do it, and his people will. Well, they will. They haven't much since then. But all Israel shall be saved, Romans 11:26, And God is going to take stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious Israelites and turn them into loving, hospitable, wonderful friends to live together in peace and harmony throughout eternity. Now, somebody might read this and say, well, I know him, and he's going to take charge of his family, and they'll, be, they'll obey and his household after him, and say, God didn't know what he was talking about. Ever after, Israel always rebelled and sinned, almost invariably. A few in the early New Testament church were truly converted, but many were not and fell away. Here in the end time, many have been called, some were converted, some were not, and many have fallen away. So any period of history you look at, there aren't very, very many of Israelites even, and even fewer Gentiles, who have obeyed. We got even said of Nineveh, you know, they repented. If you had gone and preached the same sermon and walked into a city of Israel and said the same things, They'd have laughed and put you to scorn. But then they repented. Not for very long, but they did. For a little while. <coughs> but God knew Abraham, and he knew that his seed would be the kind of people he could work with. He knew he'd have problems with them, and he did. But he knows in the long run, when he gets done, they're going to straighten out and serve and worship him forevermore. So this is a true statement here. Now, we go to another issue here. The Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, verse 20, their sin is very grievous. I'll go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come to me. And if not, I will know. So, God knew everything that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. He had angels who were reporting. But Christ said, I'm going to go down here, and I'm going to see this thing for myself in person, going to be on the spot, and see if it's really as bad as these angels are telling me. <laughs> so, he knew what was going on. Not as Pharaoh falls that he doesn't know it, but he wanted to do a personal witness before he sent hellfire and brimstone down on them. The men turned their faces from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Eternal. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now here's a very interesting thing in regards to Abraham. He was a caring person. He cared for a lot of people he did not even know. He didn't know all these people in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
at all. He just saw that God was about to wipe out two cities and everybody on the plane. And he cared enough about people that he immediately began to question Jesus Christ, or Melchizedek, his Lord. Are you going to destroy the good and the bad? What if there are fifty righteous within the city? Will you also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are there? That be far from you to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from you? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's a, that's a pretty heavy question. You're God, and you mean you're going to destroy righteous people? He's questioning pretty heavily here. But he knew Abraham. And he was God. And he allowed this. The Eternal said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sake. Now, he already knew there weren't any, except one. <laughs> but he goes along and talks to Abraham, and lets Abraham go through this and reason it all out. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak to the Eternal, which am but dust and ashes. He realized he was in deep water here. I'm just dust and ashes, and God is way, 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 way above me, and here I am questioning him. So he had these thoughts going through his mind, too. Even as he questioned, he was becoming afraid of where he was headed. But he also trusted in God as being righteous and thought, how can he destroy righteous people? So he pressed on. Peradventure, they shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Will you destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, if I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. We're doing a little negotiating here. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found there. I'll not destroy them for forty's sake. Pushes some more. He said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. He's getting pretty worried here. Don't be angry. And I will speak. Peradventure there shall be thirty. He said, I will not do it if I find thirty. Abraham's pushing God pretty hard. Now, God did not look upon this as unfriendly. He didn't look upon it as rebellion. He looked upon it as Abraham had a character quality whereby he cared for people. And he didn't want to see anybody righteous destroyed. And God, I think, was showing mercy because of that attitude of Abraham. Anybody that pushed the God this hard often fell into trouble. When people pushed against Moses, the ground opened and they were gone. So God can be very quick and be very severe in his judgments and his punishments. But... Abraham's character, Abraham's attitude, 
his love for people he did not even know, if perchance they were righteous, God showed patience for. Now doesn't Paul say, it's coming back to me slowly here, that if we take care of the widow and the orphan and live unspotted before the world, that's not exactly the one. But he says, I will count it as righteousness if we do a certain thing. Where is that? I can't quite pull it up. It's tied together there in what I just said. But oh, It says the righteousness of one would cover the sins of many. The word's almost to that effect. So it is a principle with God that if we help others and take care of a few, that it will cover sin. God will overlook sin because of our attitude toward other people. That's the thought. And he saw that attitude within Abraham, so he was very, very patient with Abraham when he saw love, caring. Love is the most important thing. Faith will no longer be needed. We have faith in a resurrection and immortality. We believe it. Once it happens, it's happened. You don't need to believe in it anymore. It's done. Hope is something for the future. And once our hopes are fulfilled, we won't need hope anymore. We'll need love forever. (laughs) It's the greatest thing. Because everything else will be done, but we're going to have to love each other forevermore. Every one of us, love each and every one of us forevermore. As much as we love ourselves, but not as much as we love the Father and the Son. That will be the condition of everyone in the kingdom of God. It's beyond our comprehension, I know that. But it's something we have faith in and hope for that will have that kind of love so that there will be peace and security forevermore. Now, your mind and mine are going to have to be changed in the spirit and given the very attitude and personality of God in order to love that much. But he's told us that's the goal. That's what I want you to do. Now, we fall short of it day by day, but we have to keep plugging away because that's ultimately what he wants us to be. That's what the commandments all hang on, is loving each other as much as we love ourselves and loving him even more. That's what this whole thing is all about. During this trial period and then maintaining that attitude forevermore. God saw that attitude in Abraham that was part of his character, that he would love somebody that he'd never met. And intercede to the point of maybe getting in trouble with God himself, because he cared that much. Now, there's a trait of Abraham's character that we could look to and learn a lot from. You see why he was a God's friend? He cared. And that's what this passage is all about. And he said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak to the Eternal. I realize I may be even being 
presumptuous here, peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I won't destroy it for twenty's sake. And he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but just one more time. I know I'm pushing it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Peradventure ten will be found there. Yep, I'll find ten, I'll preserve it. That was the end of it. Abraham realized he'd pushed as far as he could push, and he realized that the caring that he felt for them, that the Lord shared, that they had the same attitude, that if he could find ten there, he would not kill any of them. So, Christ's attitude and Abraham's attitude were the same. That's what we're working toward, is having the same attitude that God has. He loves us enough that he counts our hair. He loves us enough that he reads every thought and ponders our heart and is making sure which way we'll go. And if we start going the wrong way, he'll do something to fix it. Yes, you did laugh. Oh. Yes, you did lie. Oh. Sometimes it's punishment. Sometimes it's a reminder. Sometimes it's something loving that he does for us to help us understand that he really is God and does love us. Sometimes that's what we needed. He isn't harsh and he doesn't always come down hard on us. Sometimes a word of encouragement helps us as much as a chastening, doesn't it? Sometimes with each other. Just a little word of encouragement. Or telling them, you know, I kind of like you. I love you. Uh, what can I do for you? Boy, you look down today. What can I do to help you? Uh, or just say something nice, you know. And it can encourage, it can pick us up. Well, they both have that attitude. And we need to have it with each other. And I've seen times when God has used encouragement is the best way to get me on the right track. He really does love me. Wow. Oh, that's encouraging. That would have done me more good sometimes than a good paddling. And I look back, and my dad had hard, a hard time expressing his love for his children. I've said this before. And he would build up and build up, and when he did take his belt off, he didn't quit till just before his heart attack. And then it would start building up. Mom would beat on us every day. You know, she didn't let it build up. She just got after it. <coughs> but with Dad, that was it. But you know, there were times if he had just said, I love you. Boy, what that would have done for me. My first car accident happened when I was 16 because I was being stupid and inattentive. I messed up the front of the car. Dad came in from work. There's the car. It had to be towed in to where he worked. So he saw it before he ever got home. He sat down and didn't say a word. 
didn't pull off his belt, didn't chew me out from one side to the other for being stupid and 16, which he could have done. He sat there for a long, long time. Seemed to me like hours. I don't know how long it was. A while. And then he said, do you think you could take the pickup out and milk the cow without wrecking it? I felt about that high. But it did me a whole lot more good than a whipping or being grounded for six months or whatever he could have done as punitive measures. Just the fact that he quietly said, you think you could drive another 20 miles without destroying something? I found it humbling, but I also found it encouraging. He hasn't totally given up on me. There was, I think in his reaction, there was a lot of love expressed that he had trouble just saying verbally. You know what I mean? He did learn when he was 60, 70 years old to give me a hug and say, I love you. You know, that meant a whole lot to me as an old man myself, that he had come to that point in his growth, that he could do that with me and my brothers. He'd always been able to do it with my sisters. I hate women. <laughs> no, I... He was able somehow to express things, because he and my mother were communicated very well, and they, could, they told each other they loved each other every day, and I heard it. She wouldn't say it to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? He had trouble with that. But he finally learned. And I, I feel a lot better toward him today than I would have had he not learned it. So he was an old dog, and he learned new tricks. It can be done with the help of God and His Spirit. So don't think you can't. He did, and you can. And we can come to have these same attitudes that both the Lord and Abraham had. A clock moves off inside my head after about an hour, hour and 15 minutes, and here we are. So... Um, that's a good place to stop, seeing the trust that was there and, and the same attitudes that were close together. Uh, we need to come to have that kind of closeness with God so that we could even come to the place we might question Him and Him love us so much we get away with it. It reminded me as I read that about Jacob who wrestled with Him all night. And... He was blessed as a result. Say, hey, you prevailed with God. You fought me and prevailed until Christ reached down and touched his hip and put it out of joint and it was over. Could have done it at any time, but he wanted to see how strong Jacob would be, how perseverant, and how obedient. Another story, but let's stop there. See you Wednesday night, 7.30, for Bible study.